line there, in, in his name our chains are shattered. In his name our chains are shattered. That's such a great picture of the one who came, this one that we celebrate, the little child of Christmas, Jesus Christ himself, as we've said oftentimes, in the manger, the simple, crude, wooden construction of the manger was a foreshadowing of the cross, his ultimate mission in which he came. And in so doing, by his death on the cross, our chains of sin were shattered. We also think about a shattering, another type of shattering today. When we find ourselves in Luke chapter 20 today, starting in verse 9. Luke chapter 20, starting in verse 9. The title of today's message is The Vineyard and the Stone. The Vineyard and the Stone. There's also a line in that song that said that he split history. Because as you know, we, uh, in, in this part of the world, we measure history based upon the birth of Christ. And it's an incredible testament to the fact that this baby that was born wasn't just any old baby, but this was truly the Messiah, the Savior of the world. There have been great men and women in the history of our world, but none of them, uh, none of them has a calendar in which we measure our history that is so long standing. There have been other rulers in other parts of the world in which their kingdom, they would reset the calendar by their birth and by their ascension to the throne, but never have we seen one like Jesus Christ for the entire world draws their calendar from him. We see a shattering as well of a stone of which Jesus Christ, he was not only one that divided history, but he was in many ways a divisive figure himself. He was a a man of such zeal, of such laser-like focus and purpose and of such truth, of no waffling on the truth, that he, everywhere he went, he would naturally draw lines in the sand and essentially say, you're either with me or you're against me. He wouldn't say it in those terms, but it was essentially, if you weren't following the one who was the Messiah, the Son of God, sent from heaven above to the earth to save people from their sin, then in fact, it was enmity against God. Those of you joining us today for the first time, you, uh, we'll let you in on the fact that we have been walking through the book of Luke for quite some time. And so today and next week we'll have a couple more chapters in Luke and then we're actually going to finish the study around the Easter season in which we uh, cover the last three chapters of Luke in the Easter season. And so today we find ourselves in Luke chapter 20 as we see the vineyard and the stone. Then he began to tell the people, starting in verse 9, a parable. Again, we know the setting for this, as is oftentimes in the Gospels. Jesus is being hounded by the religious leaders, the Pharisees. He upset the apple cart, talk about a stone, talk about a divisive figure. He was divisive when it came to their self-appointed religious-slash-political system in which they had totally missed the heart of the Gospel and the heart of the law. Then he began to tell the people in the midst of this context, a certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to vine dressers, and went into a far country for a long time. Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that, he might, that they might give him, that servant, some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, uh, he sent another servant. They beat him also, treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent a third, and they wounded him and cast him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I'll send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him. 
But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come, he will destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. When they heard it, so again, the crowd that's gathered, they understood at this time. They'd been around Jesus' teaching enough. They understood he was speaking of them. He was speaking of the religious leaders, and he was speaking of those that followed their corrupted uh, source of teaching. He knew, they knew that he was talking to them, and they said, certainly not. Very strong rebuke of what Jesus said. Then he looked at them, then Jesus looked at them and said, What then is that which is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever that stone falls, it will grind him to powder. And the chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him. But they feared the people, for they knew he had spoken a parable against them. Lord God, as we come this morning to your word, let us see as we begin to wrap up this Christmas season, we think of how precious the little baby in the manger was, Jesus himself. But God, we cannot help but to look beyond that this Jesus was a great and powerful man. He was God on earth. He was therefore the God-man. He was the only man who ever walked the face of the earth that lived a holy and perfect and sinless and righteous life. And only through his death may we be forgiven and in your presence be counted as sinless and perfect and righteous. Through his stripes we are healed. And in the name of Jesus we do pray. Amen. So again, as we return to the story, we see some principal characters here. We see, of course, the landowner, which we know is a representative of God. He, it's a representation of God. God here is pictured as the vineyard owner. And so it says, as Jesus began to tell this parable, again in verse 9, a certain man planted a vineyard and leased it to vine dressers. And he went to a far country for a long time. We know here that the vineyard speaks of Israel in the Old Testament, the Hebrew people. It's a well-known, uh, well-known in interpretation of the vineyard throughout Scripture. In fact, we see in Isaiah 5.2, it says that he dug it up. God dug it up. This kind of picture again of, of, of preparing the vineyard. He dug it up, cleared it out at stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. You see, the Hebrew people were, were God's special people. They were his chosen people. Again, not because they were special, therefore they were chosen. They were special because they were chosen. Because of the faithfulness of, of Abraham and God's promise to him. They were God's chosen people and God worked with them. He, he prepared them as one would prepare a vineyard, as one farmer might prepare a field unto harvest. And, and as you might go into a harvest field that is fallow and needs to be prepared. And as you work through it, you dig up the rocks and you, and you prepare the ground. Most of us haven't worked a, a field in such a way, but on a very, 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 very small scale, we may have worked in our garden. 
We may have worked in a flower bed. We may have cut out a new flower bed out of what was previously a yard. If you've ever done that before in a section of your house in which it was just yard that may have come up to the house or maybe you wanted to extend a flower bed, you have to strip the grass. Oftentimes you have to get a rototiller and you, and you till the ground. And as you do, oftentimes you'll run into rocks or maybe the contractors years ago may have backfilled into your yard a little bit. And so you may have chunks of concrete and such and you'll come across those and you have to prepare the ground. I remember one of the one of the hardest things we had to do in our house in Texas is we had these huge trees in which ran roots pretty much just kind of horizontally through the ground. They didn't go very far vertically. And then the type of soil that, that was there in the house that was, that was pretty common there around Texas also, um, it, it encouraged roots to go out rather than down. And so we had all sorts of, of, of roots, big thick roots and what they call knees that would stick out of the ground that we had to, when we wanted to put in a new flower bed, we had to go in, we had to dig those out, we had to get uh, little hatchets, we had to get an axe, we actually had to dig out around some, get a chainsaw and come out. It was hard work preparing this ground. And we see here from Isaiah chapter 5, this is exactly what God did with the Hebrew people. He worked with them, he worked with them, he worked with them. But yet, we see in the time of Jesus that as a whole, as a nation, not exclusively, not entirely, but as a nation, especially those that represented Jesus or represented the religious leadership of the day, they had missed their calling. They had missed what God had called them to, that they were to be the transmitters of the seed, if you will, the ones that were to carry the seed, capital S, the Savior, the Messiah, the one who would save the world. They were entrusted with the message of God's mercy and redemption to the entirety of the world. Yes, they were his chosen people. And yes, there were certain times in their history through the Levitical law and such in which they were called to be holy and set outside of the world so that they could be holy unto God. But yet they were also to be ones that were to be emissaries of the message of who God was, that he was a God of mercy and redemption. And although his message of mercy and redemption had not quite fully developed into its apex that we see in Jesus Christ, they were to be the ones that were to take the message, the message of a merciful and redemptive God. We see these vine dressers that are pictured here as well are pictured of the religious leaders of the day, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the such, the scribes, many of those of which we see Jesus Christ going to war with, if you will, war of words and a war for heart and minds to lead them, to lead those of the, pe the people, the, the crowds, the masses away from the destructive teaching of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. So in verse 10 it says, now at vintage time he sent a servant to those vine dressers and that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty handed. And as he sends them again, notice the increasing, uh, the, the increasing enmity that we see against those. Again, he sent another servant, and they beat him also and treated him shamefully. And again, he sent a third, and they wounded him and cast him out. A word here, a phrase here that speaks of an even deeper type of injustice and a deeper type of beating, physical beating. So we see this increasing degree of enmity against the representatives of God. And as we can clearly see from this, these servants 
of God, these servants of the vineyard owner that come represent the Old Testament prophets that would come and they would speak the message to, to Israel, repent, 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 turn your lives back, turn your hearts back to the God of Israel, the God of heaven and earth, turn back to him. Just as he has forgiven you nationally and individually time and time again, he will do it again. Turn back, turn back, turn back. But time and time again, we see throughout the history of Israel that they, they treated the, the prophets of God. At best, they treated them with disdain. At worst, they would beat them. They would send them away. They would treat them with enmity. We see here in verse 13, Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I'll send my beloved son, and probably they will respect him when they see him. Obviously, we know that the Son here represents the Son of God, Jesus Christ. He was the last of the prophets. We see that in the book of Hebrews, a wonderful exposition of the Old Testament Scripture as we see that it's written to the Hebrew people and it shows how Jesus is superior to one great figure of the, of, of the Old Testament Scripture after another, one great group after another, and it shows that he is superior to all of the prophets. He is the last and the greatest of all the prophets. But we also see here that the son carries all the authority of the father. When this son that came in the midst of the parable, the son that came to the vineyard, he carried all the authority of the father and that is exactly who Jesus was and, and exactly what he carried. When we think now about this Christmas season, again, as we've said, there lying in the manger was God himself, God the son. It was Jesus Christ, the God-man, who carried all the authority of the Father. Yet as he came, as it says in Philippians chapter 2, he came with great servitude. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We see here the response. We see here the response. And as we look at this response, it, it paints a picture of this just stubborn unbelief of a cold, dead heart. Whether it's 1st century or 21st century, the response just speaks of a stubborn unbelief of a cold, dead heart. Let that not be our response to Jesus Christ today. This is one of the things that makes the Bible so timely, whether we read it in the first, whether it was the, the original parables, the giving of these parables to the original first century hearers, or whether we read it today in the 21st century. It is so current. It is so relevant. Because it speaks of a loving father, merciful, redemptive father, speaking directly to a cold, dead heart. So he sends the son. But here's their response in verse 14 and 15. But when the vine dressers saw him, again representing the religious leadership, they reasoned among themselves saying, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and they killed him. Therefore, what will the vineyard or do to them. You see, in those days, the, the original hearers of Jesus would have known the law well of what the, the stipulations for vine dressers, those who work the vineyards, they would know that if there is a vineyard owner that passes and there is no heir that claims the vineyard, after three years, the vine dressers, those tenants who may have faithfully worked the vineyard for years, can lay claim to the vineyard. You know, as we kind of draw these principles into the 21st century, 
we think about our lives, we think about this church as a whole, have we claimed the vineyard, if you will, of our lives for ourselves? Or do we still recognize the authority of the vineyard owner? Do we recognize the authority of God in our lives, that he is the one through Jesus Christ who bought and paid for our lives, and therefore, just as, as we do at the moment of salvation, Jesus says, count the cost of following me, because the cost of following Jesus is the cost of our entire lives. He gave his life for us. That was a cost that it took to pay for our lives. And in response, the cost that it is to give our lives to him is the cost of our very lives. We give control. He now lays claim to our life. Do we in our lives, maybe some of the frustration, maybe some of the difficulty in life that you may be facing, maybe we could say, even as our church, do we try to stake claim to what is naturally God's and say, we lay claim to this church. We lay claim to our own lives. Could it be, again, some of the frustration, difficulty that we may face throughout our days, our weeks, our months, our years, just as we live our lives? Could some of that difficulty and frustration be because we are not giving over authority and ownership and laying claim to the one who truly owns our lives, but yet we are trying to lay claim to it ourselves, and therefore we face that difficulty are we trying also, as we see here the, the, the voices, are we trying to see here the voices of those, those vine dressers, uh, those that came against Christ as they represent the religious leadership that tried to silence Jesus Christ, silence his message, silence this sort of uh, draw of power, this, this just kind of tamping down this draw of power that they were seeing as Jesus spoke this incredibly powerful message in, in which the people responded because they knew there was truth. You see this power draw coming from the religious leaders of the day. In the same way as they tried to silence the voice of Jesus. Are we doing the same? Are we trying to silence the voice of Christ through the Holy Spirit in our lives? Are we trying to say, you know what, I want to live life the way that I want to live it? Whether we're an unbeliever in this room that desperately needs Jesus Christ or maybe we're a believer and we have just kind of uh, over time and not spending time with Jesus Christ and living at times disobediently, we are silencing the voice of Jesus Christ. Let God lay claim again to your life and do not silence the voice of Jesus. Verse 16, here's the response. It says, the, the vineyard owner, he will come and he will destroy the vine dressers and he will give the vineyard to others. You see, when we uh, do not respond to the gracious call of God, we trigger the wheels of justice. When we live with our kind of handout, uh, stiff-arming the Holy Spirit, stiff-arming God and say, I got this, I can live my life myself, we trigger the wheels of justice. We see here that phrase specifically, the giving of the vineyard to others. It has significance in two, point, two points. First of all, historically, we know that the, the vineyard represents Israel, represents in fact, uh, specifically in this verse, the, the land of Israel. We know Jerusalem, in fact, throughout its history, throughout a great period of the 20 centuries that have followed this time, we know that a great period of that time, Israel itself, has, has fallen in the hands of the Gentiles. But we also know, uh, to a greater degree, the, the significance is spiritual here. The dominance of the Gentiles in the kingdom of God. 
We know once again that the Hebrew people were not special. Therefore, God said, man, look at those people. I'm going to make them my special people. They were special because God chose them. God chose a man, Abraham. And he, and he, he said, I'm, gonna, I'm going to bless you and make you a great nation. But over time, collectively painting with a broad brush, the, the Hebrew people had begun to read their own headlines and they began to, to kind of look down their noses at the other people of the world. Not so much a removing ourselves from the point of holiness so that therefore we can then be a great witness of the God, uh, the great God of heaven to these other peoples of the world, these Gentile peoples. But they had started to look down their nose at them. And Jesus says very clearly, this kingdom is going to be given to these others it speaks of that dominance of the gentiles in the kingdom of god and we do see throughout the christian history the christian kingdom of god we see it's dominated by those who are non-hebrews so he says again we're giving the vineyard to others and what was their response the response was in this very powerful way this almost guttural visceral way saying certainly not they knew what he was saying. They knew what he was saying. And instead of responding with a brokenness and an enmity directed at themselves and their own heart, they were incensed with Jesus. Not incensed with their own heart. Not looking unto themselves and saying, certainly not. Not responding with a brokenness. In verse 17 it says this, And then he looked at them, Jesus, he looked at them and he said, This is now what is written. This is what is written. The stone which the builders rejected, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Quoted from Psalm 118.22. It speaks of, we know that the stone that the, the, that the masons build, if you can imagine a, a masonry setting in which a stone which is needed for the stability and the squareness of the building, one that was rejected, one that was looked over by the masons and uh, those and the builders of, of a building that might be erected, said this is a stone that is not worth it, let's cast it aside, but yet that one has become the chief cornerstone. When we think of a cornerstone and we think of this cornerstone representing Jesus Christ, a cornerstone represents a standard. It's a, it's a standard in which the building is built. It is a standard to make sure that the building is square. Not only that, but it presents stability and strength. In Jesus Christ, this one in which was a Messiah, in which they did not want, they wanted a military Messiah, one that would come and overthrow Rome and set them back on the throne of the world's kingdoms. Yet Jesus came and he was a standard. He was strong. He was stable. And he set the square. He set the standard for us. Not only was he the cornerstone, but he was also a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Isaiah eight fourteen says that very thing. And when we see uh, enmity towards Christ, or unbelief equals enmity towards Christ. When we look at Romans chapter 5, it paints a picture of those who do not know Christ. It isn't as though we're just kind of wandering through life and we're just kind of saying, you know what, I don't know if I'm, if I'm going to kind of believe in Christ. I don't know if I want to believe in something other than myself. It, it, we oftentimes paint a picture as if we were just kind of confused and wandering and stumbling through life. But Romans 5 paints a picture of fist-shaking rebels unto the throne of heaven in the face of the great glory of God and his great love and mercy unto us in which he would send his own son to die for us. So he was a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. 
Because by the very nature of who he was and his mission, a line was drawn in the sand of either belief or unbelief. Not only that, but it paints a picture of Jesus establishing a new building. A new building. 1 Peter 2.9 says, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It speaks of those who through Jesus Christ, those of us in this room, and as we represent believers, Christians throughout the entirety of the world and the entirety of history, that even though there was a chosen people, we are now a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. Not just so that we can sit and can soak up the fact that we are his chosen people, but that we may proclaim the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So not only do we see this cornerstone, but also in verse 18 we see this other aspect of the stone. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken. On whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. You know, we see a very similar picture in Daniel chapter 2, which is, uh, speaks in, in the same way of Jesus Christ. And that, uh, that focal point of that passage is a prophetic focal point, not of the first advent of Christ, but the second advent of Christ. And if you remember the context of Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has a dream. And no one in his kingdom, none of his astrologers, none of his wise men can... Uh, can interpret the dream but Daniel comes in he interprets the dream and the dream is of a great figure a great statue with a head of gold representing his own kingdom kind of an upper torso of of silver and a lower torso of 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 bronze and then uh, legs of iron feet of clay and it speaks of the the successive kingdoms following the kingdom of Babylon in which one empire will give way to another which will give way to another which will give way to another and then it jumps ahead to the end of time, at the return of Christ. And it paints this picture of this great stone that's cut out of a mountain, not made with hands, not crafted by any man, but it was crafted only by God, representing Jesus Christ, who came and it crushed, crushed that very figure. And it spoke of kingdom after kingdom after kingdom would give way to that one great stone, that one great ruler, who is Jesus Christ. So as Jesus uses a very similar picture here in this passage, in this parable, to wrap up this parable, in this section in which we see the, vin- the vineyard and the stone, he says, whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. You can imagine if you have a glass vase in your house, very precious to you, maybe it's not uh, worth a great deal of money, but maybe it's, it's worth a lot to you because it was passed down uh, from family member to family member, whatever it may be, whether it has monetary significance and value or whether it just has value because it's been in your family. You can imagine uh, if there's a stone in your backyard, maybe it's a decorative stone. You can imagine that stone, if you were walking with that vase and you drop that vase on that stone, it will shatter it. But you can imagine that same stone... That same stone is being set in place. Maybe you picked it up at, at uh, a lawn and garden store, whatever it may be, so that you could set that decorative stone in place. If you were to drop that stone and it were to fall on that vase, the result would be the same. And Jesus' great point here, and really this whole 
passage builds to this one point in which you can imagine the original uh, hearers, the original audience of Jesus, and it is so contemporary and contextual even today is this. Enmity towards Christ and apathy towards Christ brings the same result. Enmity and apathy towards Christ both are destructive responses to Christ. All of this passage, all of this parable, and then his, uh, his, his preceding comments, his comments rather that wrapped it up, all leads to that point that whether it's enmity or apathy, both lead to destruction. You see, Jesus Christ himself was in many ways a divisive figure because he drew lines in the sand. He didn't sugarcoat the truth. He cared too much for the people of which he spoke to sugarcoat the truth. He would lay it out just like it was. And he would say to the people, I am here. I am the Messiah. I have come. If you respond to me with, uh, with enmity or whether you respond to me with apathy, both will lead to destruction. Today, if we're here, today as you're here, if you've not given your life to Christ, may you not respond to him. If you responded to him throughout the entirety of your life with enmity or you've responded with apathy, may today be the day that you allow that stone wall of your heart to break down and you would respond to Jesus Christ with humility. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you now. As we celebrate in the Christmas season, not only the coming of Christ, but we celebrate what he brought unto us, which was salvation. God, we pray for those that may be here today that need to hear the message of Jesus Christ in the exact same way that those of his original audience heard it. In which he was saying, I am the stone. I am the stone and I have come. I can either be your rock of salvation or if you respond to me with enmity or apathy, it will lead to destruction. God, I pray for those that are here today that may be feeling that, that destructive nature of the life that they've lived. Maybe they feel it very, very palpably. They know that they've lived life in such a way that it has kind of brought a life of destruction uh, to them. Maybe there's been periods in their life in which it ebbs and flows and definite periods in their life which they can feel the effects of destructive living. But God, may today be the day that their heart breaks down, the wall, the stone wall of their heart breaks down. And may they allow Jesus in to be the rock of their salvation. And in his name we do pray. Amen. We come now to this time.